2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The truth is the most
0: convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We well, must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy... This was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. i tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, July 24th, 2023, the 915th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at imyourmoderator.substack.com. I briefly mentioned the upcoming film Oppenheimer from Christopher Nolan, a very famous Hollywood director who first made his big break with the indie film Memento. And no, I'm not claiming it was his first film. I'm just saying that's how he became well known. And then he moved on to such films as Inception, Interstellar, Tenet, Dunkirk, and the Batman series when Christian Bale was playing Batman. Massive Hollywood blockbusters by Christopher Nolan. Always with a bit of a philosophical undercurrent and a political undercurrent. He has ideas that he wants to make sure his audience is convinced of. He's got a brother named Jonathan Nolan, who is a very successful writer, director, showrunner in Hollywood. He is most well-known for the show Person of Interest and then of course, HBO's Westworld. But he also worked with his brother on Interstellar and The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. He wrote The Prestige. And so, as I said on Friday, these guys are like Hollywood royalty. These are some of the biggest current directors and showrunners out there. Huge projects. And in all their projects, No matter the characters and the setting and the style of movie, they're always trying to introduce these philosophical or political ideas, and sometimes they are very elegantly handled and sometimes they are not. Most often, they're the sort of ideas that they want to communicate in a way that will convince dumb people that this is what smart people think. They will be introduced to some idea, they will go along with that idea throughout the story. And at the end, they will reach the conclusion that the Nolans want its audience to reach from these new ideas. And Westworld was such a great example of this. Westworld is ultimately a show about these AI robots that intend to replace humans. And the humans are supposed to be okay with it because of how poorly they've treated these AI robots in the past. Now, maybe I'm getting the Nolans completely wrong in my interpretation, and maybe they're just expert red pillars at a level beyond which I can even detect. But outside of that possibility, most of their work serves to promote the agenda of the regime, convince people that these potential existential crises are very real and must be thought of in a certain way in order to properly deal with them. And of course, that's what we get in Oppenheim. I think I said on Friday that I was expecting propaganda. If I didn't say it, I was nonetheless expecting propaganda. I went and saw that movie Friday afternoon, and what I got was three hours of propaganda. Now, again, maybe I'm just not seeing the absolute genius of this. I could be potentially exactly wrong. Maybe this is all such a subtle operation that I can't see how it's going to wake people up. But I really do think the people claiming that are mistaken. A lot of people said, well, maybe this will convince the people out there that Russian associations are often used to take down men who have no association with Russia. Maybe that'll help them figure out something with the dynamic around Russiagate and the whole hoax of stories about Trump collusion. Maybe it'll teach them something about Russia, Ukraine. And if that's the case, fine. I guess that that would be a nice step for the villagers to take. But while the film does that, if I would even go so far as to admit it does that and I would not go that far, but even if it did do that, it still reconfirms the entirety of the central narrative about nukes and about World War II. And while I don't claim to be an expert in any way on either one of those subjects, I do claim to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have been lied to extensively about both. So to understand some of that history, to be familiar with the material in Prussia game, to watch what's happening right now vis-a-vis Ukraine, and then believe that we have always been told the truth about nukes and Nazis and World War II, well, that's absolute madness. That's a bridge too far. And when a massive summer blockbuster spends three hours convincing you that beyond whatever else you might end up thinking about the man J. Robert Oppenheimer, there is no doubt that the central narrative around Nazis and nukes in World War II is 100% true. They would never lie about that. They would lie about other things. They would lie about a pandemic. They would lie about a stolen election. They would lie about a war where they're funding Nazis. They would lie about a domestic insurrection. They would lie about a slave trade. But they would never lie about World War II or nukes or Nazis. And the way you know that they would never lie about any of this is that anytime someone proposes that they are lying, it's anti-Semitic, even if you're not talking about anything that has to do with Jews. Now, here I go spreading disinformation, but anytime I see a story that we are not allowed to question, and then I see a massive push in pop culture to assure us that no lies were ever told about that story, I can be pretty damn sure that what I'm seeing is propaganda. Over the weekend, I was posting about this on Twitter and my friend Ash in America replied, this was the most boring Nolan film I've ever seen, but I don't think the purpose was to entertain. It was to rewrite history and set up the quote, AI requires global governance op. And I think that's a very good point. In fact, we just talked about AI as a priority of the global governing bodies on Friday. There is absolutely a push for that right now in society. And I wrote the entire point of the nuclear weapons narrative and the AI narrative is so that the Prussian regime can reconfirm that there, one so smart that no one can even imagine the power they possess and two capable of destroying everything at a moment's notice if we misbehave. And let's consider their major constant threats, nukes, AI, climate change, pandemics. Which ones of those are real? Climate change certainly is not real. Man-made climate change, the way they discuss it as an existential crisis for this world, is an absolute hoax. So what about pandemics? We saw what happened with covid You don't even have to get into the debate on whether or not viruses exist to understand that we were lied to extensively about COVID and that pandemics are a big part of the World Economic Forum narrative and agenda. Everyone understands that they are studying deadly pathogens in bioweapons labs around the world. Everyone understands that the pandemic was created entirely from tests that don't work and media reports about case counts because people were forced to test for a disease that they could not even tell they had. How real is the pandemic threat? How real was the COVID threat? If the media hadn't reported about COVID and we weren't forced to change our lifestyles in such dramatic ways and get tested. If they hadn't made COVID the centerpiece of our lives, how would we have even known it was happening? Could we have looked outside and seen people dying in the streets? No, of course not. So how real is COVID? And if COVID wasn't completely real, why should we trust them about other pandemics? Oh, because they happened in the past? Well, who told us about them? The same people who told us about COVID. I'll be damned. It happened again. It's those same people that tell us about the existential threats. And AI is an existential threat, right? AI is going to take over our lives. Jonathan Nolan showed us that in Westworld. And the truth is, once the AI starts to take over, we should actually help them. We should be nice to them and facilitate it because we were so bad to that AI in the past, and we don't want that AI to call us speciesist. Of course, it's smarter and better than us and stronger than us. It would therefore be allowed to treat us as we treat animals. And so we need to make a deal with it. Otherwise, it's going to wipe us out. You see, if we don't allow the global government to control AI, then there's a chance that it won't be regulated. And if it's not regulated... Well, it's going to cause the sea levels to rise. through. Oh no, wait. That's not the right thing. It's not the sea levels. Not for. Not for AI. That's for. It's for climate change. <laughs> Sorry. So if we don't let the government control AI, what it's going to do is kill everybody's grandma. Oh, wait. That's pandemics. Sorry. What we need to do is vaccinate against. No, no. We don't need to vaccinate against the AI. That's. Pandemics and AI at the same time? No, that doesn't make sense. Okay, so what we need to do is give the global government power to regulate everything. And since we're not experts in AI, we need to listen to the experts. And since we're not scientists in AI, we need to trust the science. And so we're gonna listen to the experts. We're gonna trust the science. We're gonna make sure that the global government has the power to do whatever they need to do. Otherwise, AI is an existential threat to us and it could kill us. So what we need to do is behave. That's the whole thing. These threats are so big. They're so complicated. They're so far beyond our grasp and certainly our control that we need to hand all our power over to governmental authorities so that they can work toward fixing it. Now, are they going to fix it and protect us from the problem? Absolutely not. How do we know that? Because they're causing the problem. They're the ones telling us that the problem is a problem, and they're telling us about the magnitude of the problem. They're telling us what we need to do to fix the problem. What we need to do is give them power and wealth and all the authority they need and all of our compliance. Otherwise, everyone's going to die, just like with climate change and pandemics. And it sucks that we're not smart enough to understand AI. But unless we all want to be wiped off the face of the earth, we better let these lunatics take over. Now, here's what the normie brain does at this point, And you can gauge your norminess based on your reaction. The normie brain says, yeah, OK, well, I get it about climate change and I get it about the pandemics. I mean, I know we were lied to. I think something happened. I think something happened. Don't get me wrong, but I know that we were lied to. So I understand like climate change, pandemics. I got it. But you can't believe that, like, nukes are fake or that AI isn't a threat. I mean, come on. This is technology. You know what technology can do. Ah, yes, ah, yes, I know. We worship the technology. In this scientific materialist realm, we think that technology equals advancement and betterment. More technology equals better. More technology equals progress. Progress is all we care about. But we're not progressives. We just... Yeah. You know, we just uh we want to uh base everything on the um yeah, the latest uh research, the latest research. Uh, you know, they do studies about things and when they do those studies, like we want to know what those studies are because we're smart, educated people who want to know the cutting edge information, this new stuff that the scientists are figuring out about the world every day and every night, all the time. The scientists are on it. Like, fine, they would lie about climate change and pandemics, but they're not lying about AI. Of course, they're able to create some technological god that knows everything and can control everything, is everywhere all at once, and can bend humans to its will. And maybe there's some sense in which they're right. They have been very, very successful at creating false gods, and they've been very successful at using their technology to force compliance. But it's awfully convenient that they always have these existential threats where if we don't give in and hand over all the power and the money and give them all the control authority they need to tell us they're just about to fix the problem anytime, then there will be no tomorrow for us. And of course, that is exactly the story that they told in Oppenheimer. And it's the entire purpose of the nuclear narrative. And it actually does not matter whether or not nuclear weapons exist in order to understand what they are doing with this narrative. Now, everybody assumes that nuclear weapons do exist because we were told that they were dropped on Japan. But what if they weren't dropped on Japan? There are plenty of reasons to believe that those were just conventional weapons. Even the movie makes clear that it wasn't necessary in order to defeat Japan. So what did... Hiroshima and Nagasaki show the world. Well, it showed two things. One, that these weapons are very, very, very real. We've announced these weapons to the world. Therefore, they are real. They can't be fake if we've announced that we've dropped them. And this city is now a pile of rubble, except there are plenty of cities that have been turned into piles of rubble in the last hundred years, and no other ones required nuclear weapons. And again, my goal isn't to try to argue that nuclear weapons don't exist. I'm arguing against the existential threat that they hang over our heads because it is of the same form as the other existential threats, climate change, pandemics, AI. And those aren't the only existential threats. They talk about food shortages that they cause and that they have caused historically in order to amass more control. They talk about the dangers of disinformation and accuse us of spreading it so that people worry that the world is going to end if everyone believes all the no-no things. All of these threats come with the same form constantly. There is no reason to believe they're not lying about them. And I know that a lot of you are probably like, okay, well, now you're going too far. (laughs) Now you're going too far. They would never, ever lie about nukes, especially not in relation to Nazis in World War II. Except where are we at right now in the world? We're talking about nuclear war with Russia, just as we have been since back when they first created this bomb, back when the bomb was just a baby bomb, back when the bomb was just a twinkle in Einstein's eye. Oh, that old Prussian. And wait, what? Einstein? Prussian? Yes. Was Oppenheimer Prussian? Why, yes, he was. And the funny thing is, on Friday, of course, I mentioned Christopher and Jonathan Nolan's other brother, Matthew Nolan, who stands accused of a contract killing of an accountant in Costa Rica named Robert Cohen. This is back in 2009. Matthew Nolan, at the time, was using the alias Matthew McCall Oppenheimer in order to portray himself as a descendant of the South African Oppenheimer family. And so when you hear about these Oppenheimers, they say, no, that's not Robert Oppenheimer's family. That's the Ernest Oppenheimer South African diamond family. J. Robert Oppenheimer is from the New York Oppenheimers, the textile family. We're told that J. Robert Oppenheimer's father came to America with nothing and then became a self-made success story. So successful, in fact, that he owned a Picasso and three Van Goghs that hung in their uptown New York apartment. And then, of course, their sons both became expert physicists and also communists. But I know, I know, J. Robert Oppenheimer was only communist adjacent. He called himself a fellow traveler, but he was never part of the communists technically. But here's the thing. Both Oppenheimer families came from the exact same part of Prussia. So it's really just the Prussian regime, the same Prussian regime, of course, whose philosophy is essentially just scientific racism mixed with feudalism. Socialism, communism, Nazism, fascism are all part of the Prussian system. They are all collectivist ideologies. Collectivist ideologies are meant to funnel all the wealth and power up to the people who control everything. Communism is that system marketed to the poor and uneducated, thinking that somehow the powerful are going to agree to be equal with everyone else. And so the entire justification for what the movie is illustrating is that the Americans need to invent the bomb before the Nazis do. And the Soviets are working on it at the same time. Now, Oppenheimer, despite being a communist fellow traveler who has communists all around him in his inner circle, and he has a deplorable personal life. He is a self-loathing egomaniac who has attempted murder before. He is nonetheless a patriotic American willing to serve his country because he, as a Jewish man, understands the Nazi danger, even though Nazis are the same Prussians. And so him being the genius he is is going to oversee the Manhattan Project and get this bomb invented just in time to beat those Nazis. And of course, rather than use it on the Nazis, they're just going to, you know, drop it on Japan because reasons. Now, we're told all of this is okay because it was necessary for America. And Oppenheimer did this on behalf of the American military. It's not that he wanted to do it. He never wanted to be responsible for so much death. He just knew the only way to achieve world peace would be to convince absolutely everybody that they could be wiped off the planet in two seconds if they didn't do what they were told. So you see, he had to help for America. Now, there are two ways we can look at this. Maybe we were told the history correctly and America needed to do all of this. America, for all its faults, has always been good. Except that's not true. America has always been two things, just like everything else is. The good twin, evil twin paradigm. The evil twin existed then in America just as it exists now. We know how many Americans, corporate leaders, Prescott Bush, we're directly involved with the Nazis and the Nazi war effort. We know about their common interests. Stanford University was one of the world leaders in eugenics at the time. Nazis did rallies on American streets and in Madison Square Garden. Time named Hitler the person of the year. The New York Times gave Nazis good coverage. In fact, the New York Times gives Nazis good coverage now. Isn't that odd? But hey, I know it's just objective journalism. And yeah, We brought plenty of Nazis over this way after World War II. We needed them for the science, but there's no way we would have brought them over like before that. And then, you know, put them in secret military programs that would uh, yeah, convince the world that unless they went along with whatever they were told, everyone was going to be incinerated immediately. There's no way. No way. That they would have lied to us about any of this. J. Robert Oppenheimer was just a patriotic American, just like his communist brother, just like his series of communist lovers, just like all the communists in university that he used to associate with, just like all the union people in the university that he associates with just like the actual Nazi scientists that he went to Europe to visit over and over again. But it's not connected. What is it all like part of the Prussian Empire just because all their families are from the same part of the world and serving obviously the same regime for the exact same reasons and going along with the same worldwide propaganda campaign? And then the whole cover-up effort after? Isn't it incredible that Oppenheimer, became the guy who was speaking out against the use of the bomb, but constantly speaking for the threat of the bomb, the necessity of the bomb, and the respect we must have for the bomb. So as you might expect, the movie confirms every bit of this story. It actually makes J. Robert Oppenheimer a very complicated guy, but very cool. Very cool. Great with the ladies, Kind of a cowboy. That's why he was always hanging out in New Mexico. He just loved New Mexico. All he ever wanted to do was marry quantum physics and New Mexico. And lo and behold, the nuclear program allowed him to do just that. Very cool ladies, man. Very cool cowboy. Scientists are not only the most brilliant people by far, they are also the coolest I was amused earlier on Twitter today. Jack Posobiec said scientists should never be put in charge of a country. He's kind of been critiquing Oppenheimer this weekend as well. I quote tweeted that and said scientists shouldn't even be put in charge of science. We can have great respect for science and scientists without thinking that expertise in some often esoteric realm is indicative in any way of Leadership qualities or morality, we've seen that's not true. But in the movie Oppenheimer, it is very true. Scientists are the best. Communists are people, too. The bomb can destroy everything at once. And Nazis are so threatening and so evil that anything becomes immediately justified, including, I guess, supporting Nazi armies in Ukraine. Now, maybe some of the propaganda wouldn't have been so bad if the movie wasn't three hours long and insanely boring, particularly the last hour, which felt like three hours on its own. But it was extremely boring. Now, just to say nice things about it, it looked great. And Killian Murphy, who played J. Robert Oppenheimer, gave a wonderful performance. And there were some other good actors in it as well. Robert Downey Jr.'s performance was awful. But if you think I'm way off base... Doubting the history as it's been told and doubting the intent of this film, then you're going to have to explain this. You see, there's a documentary right now that was put out by NBC a week ago about Oppenheimer. It's called To End All War, Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. You get it? To End All War. That's what they were doing. What they were doing was creating this weapon that was so powerful that no one would ever have a war again because they would always worry about that war becoming nuclear and the whole planet just being wiped out in an instant. Except we still have war all the time. So this bomb is the ultimate tool of peace. But yet we will go to war on the premise that another country is trying to get the nuclear bomb. There are a bunch of nations that were told have nukes, but none of these nukes have actually stopped war. So the creation of the bomb certainly did not end all war. Isn't it always amazing how their utopias fail? But we have this NBC documentary. Christopher Nolan, the director of the Oppenheimer film, is actually in this documentary talking about Oppenheimer. And the documentary basically features a series of interviews. They have, I don't know, 15 or 20 guests come to sit down and talk about J. Robert Oppenheimer. One of them is Bill Nye, the science guy. Most of them are academics. They even have a young woman of color who works in the sciences. You know, a diverse cast of characters who all sit down and talk about J. Robert Oppenheimer As if they were his colleagues and they have firsthand knowledge of what he was like. They go into extended discussions about the intricacies of his personality and how he grew up. But they can't have known that from anything other than books. And if they're all relaying information from books, why do we need all these different characters to tell us what came from a book? They also had some very interesting illustrations and animations of J. Robert Oppenheimer so that they could have cartoons that made him look a certain way. Ooh, these were his dark and brooding times. Oh, these were the times where he was very, very popular. He created an entire personality for himself in Europe. He developed for himself the nickname Oppie. All of these amazing characteristics that Oppenheimer had, all of them help you understand what kind of man this was. That was brilliant enough to come up with the nuclear bomb, but also moral enough, despite his many failings, his communist associations and his Prussian lineage, to know that no one should ever use it. So check out this little clip. I just want to give you a sense of the character building that's happening here. He was having an identity crisis, something we're clearer about these days than we were then. His parents took him to Paris, where he saw yet another psychologist, and in a very French way, described a professional woman and red wine. <laughs> so, uh, we don't know if that happened. He had always been the top of the class, the smartest person, admired for his intellectual capability by all his classmates. And suddenly, he was an incompetent. And he just couldn't deal with that at that point. And what snapped him out of that was his discovery of theoretical physics, of quantum physics. At the time, it was sort of a golden age of physics. It's a very exciting time to be a theorist. And if you are young and quick and willing to think weird ideas that nobody else has ever thought, you can potentially make a huge amount of progress and a name for yourself. So when Oppenheimer decided to move to Göttingen in Germany to study with Max Born, a theoretical physicist, he blossomed. He meets some of the leading physicists in Germany at the time, Heisenberg, who, ironically enough, would lead the German atomic bomb project. A complicated man, you see, brilliant, but disturbed, and then also an incompetent. And they also admit, well, yeah, we don't know if that ever happened. I mean, the entire presentation is absolutely wild. It is begging for your consent and your belief. But the crazy thing about the documentary is if you've seen the film, the documentary and the film track the same story. And yes, you can say, okay, but the film is a biopic. I know it's a biopic. The point is that it's presenting the same story in the documentary as it is in the film. And the documentary, you can see, is just people making things up or repeating what they've been told. None of these people have direct knowledge of any of this. They are not the world's leading historians. They're just people who have learned that whole story, the official story from back then as told to us by the same people who tell us the official story. Now, we pretend that the regimes have changed, but the regimes have not changed. We pretend that the Americans defeated the Nazis, therefore Nazis disappeared even though we also know that they totally, completely didn't, and we brought some of them over here and used them for the science. But we're just supposed to believe all of it. And if we watch both the movie and the documentary, we come away believing that both are true. Oh, the true story exactly matches the fictional presentation. Well, we knew that fictional presentation was based on a true story. We just didn't know How closely that fictional representation mirrored the true story. And what a strange brain trick that is. You come away believing all the important things that both Oppenheimer pieces were designed to convince you were true. The bomb is real and a result of some devastating brilliance. We can all be wiped out at one time and will be. Unless we empower the right people to save us, we understand that there is a delicate morality surrounding the use of nuclear weapons, which is why we must never use them unless we are faced with the greatest evil of all time. And, you know, unfortunately, these Russians, well, they are that kind of evil. I mean, did you see their brutal invasion of Ukraine? I mean, they just told you that cluster bombs were necessary over there and that the illegitimate regime, the illegitimate president, was going to send cluster bombs to Ukraine to be used after that same illegitimate administration spent last year saying the Russians were using cluster bombs and that it was a war crime to do so. So they just manufactured consent of the villagers to use cluster bombs that they had convinced the villagers were war crimes. That means the villagers have all said, "Okay, well, yep, I know those Russians are evil. I guess these war crimes are worth it. And they need that, don't they? Because they need to ultimately have the nuclear threat. They thought they could get us to go along with the Russia-Ukraine thing. It didn't work. Now they need to make the threat more real. It's gonna be nukes. And it's got to be nukes, because what else do they have left? Nukes are pretty much the end of the line. I mean, it's not quite aliens. We might get to aliens, but nukes are a necessity. A month ago, we had a new Wes Anderson film that was set near an atomic test site. And now we have Oppenheimer, the summer blockbuster in the summer of potential nuclear war between Russia and Ukraine. Is that just a coincidence? Movies take a while to make. The Russia-Ukraine war has taken a while to lead up to this point. It's probably just coincidence in the same way that Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan's brother was an accused hitman using the name Oppenheimer, but not the nuclear bomb Oppenheimer, the jeweler Oppenheimer, who just coincidentally happens to also be Prussian. And if that was all we had with the nuclear propaganda, maybe I would be like, yeah, okay, it's kind of a coincidence. Maybe I'm just overshooting on this one. Maybe my discernment is a little off. Maybe my pattern seeking is getting some false positives, except they've been ramping up this nuclear thing for a long time. Remember last year they told us that Chernobyl was under threat? Chernobyl. We're told Chernobyl is a ghost town, an area just used now for research. And we also had that whole Chernobyl HBO show in like twenty nineteen. Interesting, isn't it? And so after Chernobyl, then we were told that Russia was attacking the Zaporozhia nuclear plant. But that wasn't true. They had taken over Zaporozhye. They were managing it as normal. And the Ukrainians were attacking the Russians at that nuclear plant. But we were told there could be massive nuclear fallout. We might all die if the Russians are not immediately defeated, despite the fact that defeating them would include threatening that nuclear plant. But it'll still be the Russians fault. It'll still be the Russians fault. We've been told about possible disasters at Zaporozhye over and over and over again for the last year and a half. But not only that, we've been told about the possibility for escalation to nuclear war for that amount of time as well. Nuclear war between Russia and the United States, or maybe others. And it would all be Russia's fault. In fact, Russia would be launching a first strike nuclear attack. And knowing that there's a chance they might do that, well, we have to launch a first strike nuclear attack. Except when we do it, it'll be justified just like it was back in the 1940s, whether or not it happened. And thank goodness we did it because that ended all wars, except it hasn't. But if you still think they're not pumping nuclear hysteria, let me remind you what they showed us a year ago. And it has been a year now since this was released.
2: There's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why, just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two. Stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right,
0: you've got this. Now, I talked about that on the podcast last year, but that's madness. They put out a public service announcement to tell people that in case of a nuclear attack, what you have to do is get inside stay inside and watch TV, go down to your basement and watch TV, bag up all your clothes and then watch TV so that the news can tell you when it's safe to come out of your basement. If we have already told you that there is a nuclear strike that will wipe out the world, but there is at least a chance that you might survive if you go in your basement and watch TV. Now, does all of this mean That nuclear weapons don't exist? No, none of this proves that at all. In fact, proving the non-existence of something is extraordinarily difficult. And it's strange that scientists don't really understand that with all their atheism, of course. But if the nuclear bomb exists and the threat exists, why do they have to lie about it so much? Why do they need massive propaganda campaigns to convince everybody of the truth of these things? And why do those propaganda campaigns mirror exactly the campaigns that they have for climate change and pandemics? And why are the solutions always more wealth, power, and control authority to the very same people in every circumstance? The very same people. We need to trust the experts, follow the science, and then. Have conferences where the experts convene to make decisions on how to protect the entire world at the same time. And in order to protect everybody at once, we're going to need a global government. Not only is it all the same people in the global governing organizations whose fathers and grandfathers were doing all of these same things 80 years ago, they're also doing it for all the same reasons and the same agenda, and they always have the same solutions. So maybe that's all a coincidence, but I find it a little odd, especially when the only people who can tell me anything about any of these subjects that they claim are far too complicated for us to understand are the same people who lied about COVID and masks and lockdowns and school closures and church closures and business closures. And tried to start a race war and lied about mostly peaceful protests while our cities burned down. And they lied about mail-in ballots. And they lied about election fraud and election winners. And they lied about who was a domestic terrorist telling the big lie and staging a very violent insurrection. They lie about absolutely everything. What in the world is anyone thinking when they reach a point and say no? No, they'd never have lied about this. They could not lie about this. Well, how the hell do you know? Especially when one of the characteristics of the thing they're lying about is that you couldn't possibly understand. Therefore, you have no choice but to listen to them. Yeah, sure. They would never do anything like that. And they could never pull one over on you. Think about the power that we have handed over to people who we know to be dishonest and greedy and immoral and malicious and incompetent. We give them power as fast as we can because we have allowed them to convince us that we are always under existential threat. And what makes that so effective is that they have convinced us that we are not in our normal lives always under existential threat, even though in actuality we are. Now, we don't sense that because we have come to embody this idea that our world is actually really, really safe and an even greater level of safety actually can be achieved, while at the same time understanding that something goes wrong on the road, you could be dead. A random act of violence in the world, same thing. Heart attack? Same. Take a bad vaccine? Hey, who knows? The future's not guaranteed. Now, there are, of course, ways that we can keep ourselves safer in the world. And all of us want that. None of us want to see our lives end, particularly not from something we could have easily prevented. And we certainly don't want the deaths of anyone around us. So we look for safety. Totally natural, totally normal to do that. But if we're going to empower other people and task them with providing us safety, we should know that they are actually looking out for our safety. They have the ability to protect us from things that are actually threatening us and that they truly are committed to protecting us because otherwise what we are doing is just handing over power to them as if we were a business in a mafia run town that participated in a protection racket a couple mobsters walk into our business and they say hey it's a nice business you got here shame if something happened to it and you say what like a uh, tornado and they're like no nah, you know just if someone were to come in and bash up the place or maybe set it on fire and you say well who would do that and they say ah oh, i don't know but it sure could happen and if you don't want it to happen you better give us five hundred dollars Every month on the first of the month in cash, we're gonna be here to collect. And you say, uh, What? How are you going to uh, protect me from those things? Also, I've had this shop for 10 years and that's never happened. And they say, Yeah, and we're gonna help you keep it that way. Cause otherwise, who knows? And like I said, you got a very nice place here. And that's really what we are dealing with. They tell us there is a threat. If you want to continue having this nice life you have, you had better give us all the power and money and control authority that we seek. Otherwise, who knows what can happen? And being the responsible people we are, the sort of people who seek safety always, we understand the threat. We decide that's not the sort of threat that we want to take on, that we have the strength or the courage to take on. And so we do what we can to avoid that threat, knowing that no matter how much we do and how much we give, That threat will never go away. They will always come back wanting more power, more wealth, and more authority to control you and your behavior. And we go along with it. We go along with it because, in some sense, we have been domesticated. Jason Lowry, the Space Force major who wrote a book called Soft War that has gotten a lot of discussion in and around our community, it's basically a theory of Bitcoin for national defense. And a very, very interesting reading concept. But Lowry talks about domestication and how we have lost our survival instinct, how we have failed to fortify ourselves in order to actually be able to protect ourselves in a world of chaos. We have convinced ourselves that that world of chaos does not exist, that through our society, we have protected ourselves. And because of that protection, we don't need to look after our normal, more natural human needs. Eventually, our survival instinct goes away and with it, our survival abilities. He talks about how this is what has happened with domesticated animals. And over time, they become something different altogether. Well, we have lost our survival instinct. That became absolutely clear in 2020. And that was one of the things that became clear to me early on. One of the first realizations I had near the beginning of the pandemic when I saw all of these people just believing whatever was on television, despite the reality in front of their face and all history about the subject, was that if this was a real threat, if this was a war, for instance, we would absolutely be losing because we were doing everything wrong and it seemed like we were doing everything wrong on purpose. And no one seemed to care. They were all convinced the threat was ultra real, that they weren't prepared to handle it. And so they must behave and do what they're told. And they must convince everyone else to do it too. Otherwise, everyone might die. That was absolute insanity. People not only convinced themselves that they were about to die or maybe about to cause the death of someone else. They convinced themselves that the only way to prevent it was to do what they were told all the time by people they knew to be liars who were currently lying to them and they knew it, but it was part of their responsibility because it's the only way to survive. They were going to have to tell everybody that these liars were telling the truth this time. And in fact, they're the only people who can be trusted to tell the truth ever from this point forward. We have lost our instinct to survive because we depend constantly on authority. We have been domesticated and now we do whatever we're told people injected themselves with a toxic experimental substance that can't protect them from a disease that can't kill them because the television told them they'd get in trouble if they didn't. And of course, the television told them they could potentially be responsible for killing someone's grandma. Now, even the covid super fans admit that the pandemic, quote unquote, is over. But why do they do that? Because if they don't admit the pandemic is over, then they don't have an explanation for why everyone has stopped getting boosted, despite the fact that they had all accepted they would get a booster every year forever. Because the pandemic would never fully go away. But of course, they also have to end the pandemic, because if they don't, then how will they explain how the unvaccinated aren't dying of covid? They had no idea whether or not the shot would protect them or kill them. And neither did anyone else. Certainly not in the long term. But they did it anyway because they were so scared of the threat. They complied with everything because they believed in the threat, despite the fact that the threat wasn't real. But of course, it's not just those existential threats that highlight our domestication. Yesterday, I ended up in a conversation with a woman who occasionally writes for American Greatness, and I guess that's her claim to fame or something. Her name is, I think, Roxanne Hodge. She had posted a video of Scott Pressler talking about his efforts to register voters, which is nice and good and all that, and to set up some apparatus for ballot harvesting. This is the new Republican establishment strategy for next year, ballot harvesting. And I remarked that that is a ridiculous red herring. The regime controls the voter registries, the printing of ballots, the sending of ballots, the harvesting and collection of those ballots, the casting of those ballots and the counting of those ballots. And then after the elections, they also have an entire legal apparatus set up to wage lawfare and keep their reported election results in place. Creating a system of Republican ballot harvesting will not lead to election integrity in any way whatsoever. It will give Republicans the opportunity to tell voters that what they need to do is work harder and vote harder so that when they win, they think, oh, that was our hard work. And when they lose, they think, oh, we could have worked harder there. But at no point ever will they understand that the system itself is what creates the results and that your votes don't count at all. Now, people get very upset when anyone says that. Why are you saying our votes don't matter? Well, that's not what I said. I said your vote doesn't count. Your vote does matter, which is why it's important for your vote to count. It just doesn't count right now. And setting up a ballot harvesting system on the Republican side will not make your vote count. They might find a way to collect more votes, but that doesn't mean the votes are being properly counted. It doesn't guarantee anything about the count at all. It also doesn't matter in the least when they get to spend weeks counting the vote and when they can create new registrations and new votes and new ballots on the spot. Now, maybe Scott Pressler is setting up this grassroots network that's going to get people involved in the system and create a lot of activity and bring new people into the process and all that'll be wonderful. So congratulations, Scott, if that's what his intention is. But if the intention is to convince people that ballot harvesting is a strategy toward winning rigged elections? That's preposterous because A, it can't possibly work. And B, it's completely and totally not only immoral, but antithetical to what we're actually trying to accomplish. What we want is one day of voting in person, hand marked, hand counted, paper ballots with ID, with verifiable chain of custody, always on the ballots and everything else, full transparency, full auditing capability, and maybe I'm missing an aspect or two here or there, but what we don't want is more early voting and more ballot harvesting. What we don't want is to have everyone on our side say, yeah, you know what? Those things are good, especially when there, those things are good comes with the caveat because these are the rules of the system and we have to play within the system. That is a highly domesticated answer. When you know that the people who are setting up the rules are not themselves the legitimately seeded products of free and fair elections. They don't actually have the authority to make rules to govern free people. Now, of course, upon making these points, I was told that none of what I was saying was true because the only way to achieve election integrity is to win elections, despite them being rigged. They say at least ballot harvesting and early voting are a plan. Where's your plan? The truth is those are not a plan because those are not strategies to win rigged elections. They are pretty good for getting the regime more data in advance of the election. They're both excellent strategies for that, but they're not strategies to win. And the word win doesn't mean anything when what it's referring to is a rigged election. If you win by cheating, you didn't win. You just cheated. The authority derived from rigged elections is no greater than the authority Joe Biden has right now. But we're told we must accept all of this. We have to play within their system because that's the system. And how can we change it if we don't seize power from within the system? This is the sort of thing that would have our founders spinning in their graves. It is embarrassing not only as a patriotic American, but as a human. How servile must we be? To accept that the fate of our society and our communities has been handed over in full to authorities that we know to be dishonest and acting against our interest at all times. That's why they steal elections. If they wanted to do what the majority of people wanted them to do, they wouldn't have to steal elections. How much are we prepared to give away just on the promise that we will not get in trouble or we will not be wiped off the face of the earth? Sadly, it seems the answer to that is we are willing to give away absolutely everything to ensure whatever amount of safety they tell us we will lose if we don't obey. Now, as I often point out, this is not strictly an American problem. This is a problem around the world, wherever the global regime has achieved a high degree of power and control. We saw that throughout COVID. Europe went along with everything America did. America went along with everything Europe did. All of the British Commonwealth countries went along with the whole program. And any other nations whose leaders wanted to personally benefit from the power of the regime signed their countries up as well. The global governing bodies ran COVID, just like the global governing bodies run elections in all of these countries around the world. And I talk about these other countries so consistently because their situations mirror ours. And when you understand that all of these different countries around the world who are going through similar things along different timelines, when the same things are happening there and the same stories are playing out there as are playing out here, you can see the interconnectivity of all of it and you can see the same external influences controlling the outcomes. There was an election in Spain over the weekend. This is the headline from the Associated Press. Spain at risk of political gridlock after conservative win falls short of toppling Prime Minister Sanchez. It's worth noting that Spain still has a king. In fact, Joe Biden went and met with the king of Spain last year. But like always, we don't have royalty in this world anymore. I mean, except in the Middle East. So. These kings in Europe, they are only ceremonial. The people actually vote for their leaders, for sure. But threats of political gridlock. The Associated Press followed up today with this headline. Election leaves Spain in political disarray with no party having an easy path to form a government. Spaniards woke up Monday to find their country in political disarray after a general election a day earlier left no party with a clear path to forming a government. The uncertainty deepened as both of Spain's two main parties indicated that they hoped to take power. The only sure thing seems to be that the country faces weeks, perhaps months, of political negotiations and possibly a new election to sort out the mess. Here's a look at what happened and what might unfold in the next few months a bitter victory for the opposition. Alberto Nunez, Faijus, right of center, popular party or PP won the most votes and finished with 133 seats. But contrary to nearly every pre-election opinion poll, it fell far short of the 176 seats a party needs to secure a majority in the 350 seat Spanish parliament. Sounds like they were expecting a red wave and that red wave never came. Even if it joins forces with the extreme right party Vox, which garnered 33 seats, it won't reach that threshold. And Vox is basically like Spain's MAGA. So they're extreme right the same way that we are extreme right. In a nutshell, the article says the PP's decision to consider forming a coalition with Vox didn't pay off with voters. So the people on the right, despite their good day, didn't get what they wanted, and they're not going to get that majority they thought they could reach with their coalition government. They had a decent day, but ultimately they fell short with its stated intention of ousting socialist prime minister Pedro Sanchez. Now far from certain the PP insists that as the first placed party in the ballot, it has the right to form a government. The PP has urged the socialists to abstain in a parliamentary vote and allow the party to take power. But such a scenario is highly unlikely, given the traditional animosity between the two groups. Taking office as a minority government would also leave the PP fighting for its survival on nearly every piece of legislation it introduces. Besides Vox, the PP has few friends in parliament. So they're talking about the prospect of another leftist coalition. Spain's uniparty right won't be able to successfully form a majority coalition with Spain's MAGA. So therefore, maybe the leftists have a shot at it. And that would be so much better for the regime, which is why this is framed as the extreme right being a threat in their coalition. And paragraphs like this say it all. The prospect of Spain having a far right party in power for the first time since General Francisco Franco's dictatorship has diminished for the moment after Vox lost 19 of its parliamentary seats to finish with a total of 33. Even so, it remains the country's third political force. Spain's new parliament will meet in a month. In accordance with official procedure, King Felipe VI is then expected to invite one of the party's leaders, Feiju or Sanchez, to try to form a government. Oh, the king gets to select the new prime minister and that prime minister will try to form a government. Thank goodness we've got that king there to make those kinds of decisions. That leader would then put his candidacy to parliamentary votes. Any candidate getting sufficient support can form a government. The 350 lawmakers have up to three months to reach an agreement. Otherwise, a new election would be triggered. It sounds to me like we will have a new election in the future. But isn't that incredible, just like in the Commonwealth countries where the British crown can determine whether or not a prime minister is suitable and whether laws can be passed. We see that the feudal order remains in place, and it should be no surprise that Joe Biden himself, a tool of the same regime, would be meeting with another feudal leader. But let's learn more about the Spanish election. This is CNN Today. No clear victor in Spanish election as results defy predictions. The polls were just a little bit off. How unfortunate. Spain appears destined for painful political negotiations after Sunday's elections when no single party won enough parliamentary seats to form a government. Prospects for coalition building now remain uncertain. With over 99% of the vote counted, the center-right Partido Popular is set to come in first, winning 136 seats. The upstart far-right Vox Party, a possible coalition partner to PP, is forecast to win 33 seats. And kudos to them for having 99% of the vote counted in just one day. Sad we can't do that in America. California, the most technologically advanced place in the whole, whole world. Takes six weeks to figure out who won an election. Isn't that strange? CNN notes. Calling Sunday's vote was a political gamble for Sanchez after his party suffered major setbacks in regional and local elections in May. The PP that month made huge gains amid a surge toward the right in European politics across the continent. And that's a bit reminiscent of Canada's prime minister, Justin Castro, Fidel Castro's son, Justin Trudeau, called an election that he eventually won, thus confirming his Iron-fisted grip on power, which is a bit strange for someone as effeminate as Justin Trudeau. But back to CNN. Most polls predicted that PP would win the most votes on Sunday, but fall short of an absolute majority in parliament, meaning it would likely have to form a coalition with the far-right Vox Party. Such an arrangement would have courted controversy by ushering a far-right party into government for the first time in decades. But Sunday's nail-biting vote count offered no easy path for a right-wing coalition to be formed. And that's what's really important. You can't let those far-right parties have any power, no matter how many votes they get. And everybody knows that. That's why we call them far-right. Once we can label a party far-right, then everyone knows they're never, ever allowed to have power. And that's just the regime saving each and every country from the far-right. And here's why. Vox, which backs policies that would roll back equality protections for women and LGBTQ people, ultimately lost some seats in Sunday's vote, down from the 52 it won in the last election. So they are far right because they might roll back some equality protections for women and LGBTQ people. But we're being told that by the same media who tells us That banning gay pornography from school classrooms and preventing them from grooming six-year-olds is rolling back equality protections for LGBTQ people. Preventing 12-year-olds from accessing trans surgeries and hormones without their parents' consent is rolling back equality protections for LGBTQ people. And we're being told that's what it means to be far right. That is why this party must never be allowed to take power. Now, we've discussed elections in foreign countries on this podcast at least 10 times, probably more than that. And every time we discuss it, I say the same thing. If you want to know about how elections are going in other countries, if you want the official story, the central narrative, go to an Internet search engine. I always think it's better to use the less censored ones, so not DuckDuckGo or Google or Bing, but they will probably be fine for this search. And you just type in the name of the country, Reuters, claims, election fraud. Each and every time you will get reporting about the election fraud that has been claimed and you will see that it is the same system in all the countries around the world. The same narratives play out with the elections around the world continuously. And that's true because the regime controls the elections in all of those countries. And there's only one playbook. They use that playbook over and over and over again. They will have societal disruptions, natural disasters like we saw in Turkey, color revolutions like we saw here. They tried to start a race war and then used Black Lives Matter Antifa to destabilize society. After the election, they then staged the American Reichstag fire to prove to the country that the opposition trying to overturn the very free and fair election were actually violent domestic terrorists whose rights needed to be removed from them immediately so we could empower the regime government. They used that same playbook in Brazil just earlier this year. And as we discussed last week, they used a version of that playbook for the Maidan revolution in Ukraine in 2014. But the social justice protest movements are not the only way they can destabilize countries. They often use mass immigration, or they use terrorists, or they use cartels. There are variations on the system depending on the country and what's actually going on there. But ultimately, it is the same playbook over and over again, and it's not hard to see. This is from Reuters. The lack of a clear result cast a shadow on Spain's current presidency of the European Union Council and risked unsettling markets. Speaking to jubilant supporters outside the PSOE's Central Madrid headquarters late on Sunday, Sanchez said Spaniards had rejected the, quote, backward looking bloc, which proposed a total repeal of all the progress we have made over the last four years. Isn't that incredible? He's the incumbent. He's the prime minister. They're not sure they can form a coalition government. They didn't get the results they wanted, but their supporters are still jubilant. And he's bragging about how the extreme right had a bad day. In a more muted address at the PP headquarters across town, Feiju insisted his party had won the election and would seek to avoid uncertainty by speaking to all willing parties to form a government. Vox leader Santiago Abascal said Sanchez could block any attempt by the right to form a government. The Reuters article notes that Sanchez called a surprise snap election after the left took a drubbing In local elections in May. And that makes sense, right? Your party takes a drubbing and you think, oh, they hate us. I guess this is the perfect time to have another election. But wait. Sunday's vote coincided with what would have been many Spaniard summer holidays and one of the hottest months in the sunbaked nation voters showed up in swimsuits and used ballots as fans while polling stations brought in air conditioners or moved voting tables outside. Turnout was up at 70.4% compared to 66.23% in the last election in 2019. Isn't that great? A high turnout election. We always love high turnout elections. We would hate to think that the Spaniards were suppressing the votes of black Americans. Oh, wait. That doesn't make any sense. That's just what happens here, because MAGA is so racist. Polls in the weeks leading up to voting, even those released as the final ballot box was sealed at 9 p.m., predicted a working majority for Feiju's PP and Vox. Ignacio Jorado, political science professor at Madrid's Carlos III University, blamed the PP's negative campaign against Sanchez for a drop in support and said Sanchez's abrupt move in calling snap elections might still pay off. The PP needed something more, especially because Vox is a hindrance, he said. And obviously political science professors are experts on politics. And so he must be correct that Vox is a hindrance because of the women in the LGBTQ thing. It's because they're far right and the Spanish decided that they were so upset with negative campaigning that they would turn out in higher numbers than ever to make sure that the left lost by not as much as they expected to. Now, here's the thing. If we go back a couple of months, things start to sound a little different. This is Reuters from May 23rd of this year. Spain arrests nine in election fraud probe. In Malia Enclave, police have arrested at least nine people in Spain's North African Enclave of Malia over alleged election fraud involving thousands of mail-in ballots for the country's upcoming local and regional elections, authorities said on Tuesday. Six suspects were detained on Tuesday and three late on Monday as police searched 10 locations, according to Sabrina Mo, the Spanish government's representative in Malia. The raids included the headquarters of the Coalition for Malia Party, which belongs to the city's three-way ruling coalition. A CPM spokesman told reporters, adding the search constituted, quote, an attack on democracy. The group, which split from Spain's Socialist Party in 1995, is led by Mustafa Aberchan, who served as Malia's mayor president between 1999 and 2000. In 2008, Aberchan was convicted for promising jobs in exchange for votes and handed a two year prison sentence and a roughly twelve thousand dollar fine. So this party that split off from socialists and is being led by a criminal who was bribing people for their votes is now being accused of election fraud using mail in ballots. And the article gets into that claim. Last week, authorities said nearly 12,000 voters in Malia had requested mail-in ballots, seven times more than the national average at 21.1% of the electorate. So normally it's about 3% and now it's 21%. People must have been worried about the extreme temperatures from climate change. Couldn't go out and vote. They need the mail-in ballot. They should have just worn masks to protect them from the weather. This prompted a change to the rules, forcing the enclave's voters to show IDs when depositing their ballots at post offices. In the rest of Spain, postal voting only requires identification when requesting the ballots. Postal workers in Malia were also given police escorts after several robberies by unidentified hooded men. Oh, man, that'll really destabilize a society, won't it? The article also notes the enclave, which Spain has held since its conquest in 1497, is now an autonomous city of eighty five thousand, about one fifth the size of Manhattan. It is surrounded by Morocco, whose government claims the territory as its own. But that's not all. This is from May 26th this year in Reuters. Voter fraud allegations mark last day of election campaigning in Spain. Allegations of voter fraud in small towns and an unprecedented case of kidnapping marked the last day of campaigning before local and regional elections in Spain on Sunday. The voting is taking place in 12 regions and 8000 towns and cities, most of them currently governed by the Socialist Party, the PSOE. Opinion polls are predicting gains for the conservative People's Party, which, if replicated in a national election in December, could unseat the ruling left wing coalition. And so this is before Prime Minister Sanchez would have called that snap election, understanding that his party had gotten beat and maybe we should have that election much sooner than we had originally anticipated. Let's just steal this one and reaffirm our power. Maybe we can reshuffle the government and make sure that fixes the problem. We obviously don't have that process here, but think about how counterintuitive it is for a prime minister in power to see his party get crushed and think, oh, we better have another election right now. What are they doing that as a favor to the citizenry? No, of course not. They're trying to consolidate power around themselves to keep themselves in control. Now, this article mentions the fraud cases in Malia. We'll skip that. Other cases emerged with seven arrested on Wednesday in the Andalusian town of Mojácar for an alleged vote buying scheme and investigations underway in small towns on the Canary Islands and in the Mercia region. The counselors involved in those cases are mostly from the PSOE. An unrelated kidnapping case in the small Andalusian town of Marasena, in which a PSOE counselor was allegedly held captive and threatened in February, was made public on Thursday by a court. Interesting timing on that. Interesting that it is mentioned in an election fraud related article. But then there's this. The judge pointed to the current PSOE mayor, Berta Linares, and her ex-partner, as possible perpetrators, according to court documents cited by El Pai newspaper. Speaking to reporters, Linares denied any involvement and questioned the fact that the case was revealed hours before the election, contributing to, quote-unquote, media noise. Opposition party leader Alberto Nunez Feiju of the Conservative People's Party called on Friday for massive voting on Sunday against, quote, those who want to win with deceit and cheating," end quote. adding that quote "democracy is not for sale." Sounds familiar, does it not? PP spokesman and member of the European Parliament Esteban Gonzalez-Pons said the investigations proved quote the rule of law works. Therefore, I believe the election results cannot be called into question," he added. And that sounds like the split we have here between Patriotic Republicans who are willing to put America first, and the Republican establishment who is still pretending that our elections are very fair and free, safe and secure, and that the reported results reflect the will and intent of the American voters while knowing that they don't. Reuters quotes the exact same political science professor, Ignacio Horrado. I don't know if that's how you say his name or not. From Carlos III University. And this should sound familiar. He claims that the alleged fraud would have little impact on Sunday's election, except in the specific places where arrests have been made. You see, it's an isolated problem. That's all. He goes on. But I don't think we are talking about a game changer. It is going to hinder the recovery of confidence in politics, which has been going on since the economic crisis. Referring to Spain's 2008 crisis. So we have a bunch of problems in the May elections. But only in those small towns that are, you know, run by the socialists, the party in power in Spain, what's referred to as their center left party. But it's an isolated problem. It could never affect the outcome of a national election. It's just not that kind of big deal. And we've already addressed it. You see, we've got these little examples. We fixed those problems. They were isolated. That's it. No systemic problems. Let's just have this election. Well, this is from July 18th. That's last week. In the Associated Press, voting fraud claims spread ahead of Spain's pivotal election. Well, that's not good. The claims are spreading. I thought they were isolated and controlled and taken care of back in May. But now we have election fraud claims spreading right before the pivotal national election that the socialist leader, upon getting drubbed in those other elections, called to hold immediately couldn't wait for December, needed to have an election now, needed to consolidate power, affirm power, affirm to the Spanish people, hey, this is what you guys really want. your commies just like us when you're worried you don't have the consent of the governed, you have to prove to the governed that they consent. You might remember a couple of years ago Gavin Newsom got recalled in California, and you know what the voters went out there and just elected him. Harder than they ever have before. Now, some California elections take six weeks to figure out, but not that one. They knew in no time that Gavin won by so much it could simply never be questioned. And no, really, you're not allowed to question it. But let's have a look at the article. Days before Spain holds a pivotal election, misleading claims about mail ballots and election fraud are spreading on social media and casting doubts about the results. Even before the votes have been counted, the allegations amplified by supporters of the center right popular party and the far right Vox party bear striking similarities to the baseless claims spread by then president Donald Trump ahead of his 2020 election defeat and offer a reminder that the distrust of elections that has marred U.S. politics has taken root in Europe, too. Sunday's general election could tilt Spain in favor of the populist right as the popular party looks to take power away from the Spanish Socialist Workers Party and its far left coalition partner, Unidas Podemos. United we can. I'm surprised the party is not called Baracas Obamas. They go through a bit of the setup that we already understand. So let's cut to the good stuff. In recent weeks, Debunked videos claiming to show election workers stuffing the ballot box have circulated widely on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook labeled the videos as false, while Twitter has taken no action. Other videos spreading on Facebook and TikTok allege Sanchez's party will steal the election to prevent a defeat. Many bear the hashtag Pucherazo, a Spanish term for electoral fraud. As in the United States, the use of mail ballots is a particular focus of election conspiracy theories, with some far-right voters suggesting the post office would be used to throw the election to Sanchez. It's a narrative that Alberto Feiju, the popular party leader, has helped to amplify. At a rally last week, he urged Spain's postal employees to remain independent. I asked the postmen in Spain to work to the maximum Morning, afternoon, and night, Feiju said, during a campaign rally in Mercia on Wednesday. Regardless of your bosses, I urge you to distribute all the mail in ballots on time. Feiju later said he was not trying to suggest the Postal Service would try to steal the election, but was instead referring to the challenges of handling so many mail ballots. Social media researchers at the nonprofit Reset identified numerous examples of election-related misinformation spreading on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. While the specific kinds of content varies by platform, anti-Muslim hate is particularly prevalent on Twitter, for instance. Election denialism was found wherever the researchers looked. Some of the accounts spreading disinformation about the Spanish election have enormous and growing reach. Election fraud narratives that undermine trust in the democratic processes and which also dominated the regional elections in Spain are spread across platforms, concluded the researchers at Reset, who shared their findings with the Associated Press. I mean, that is crazy to even quote that. All they're saying is that election fraud narratives are spread across social media platforms. That's obvious. You don't need a special research group to tell you about that. Reset, however, is based In London, and it is well-funded. On their website, they say they are funded by two groups, one called Luminate and another called the Sandler Foundation. Luminate is totally run by cronies of Pierre Omidyar. Omidyar, we have discussed many times, he was the founder of eBay. He is a major globalist philanthropist, you know, one of the very best people in the entire world. And he also owns the left-wing rag, The Intercept. Then, of course, you have the Sandler Foundation, which is run by billionaire bankers Herbert and Marion Sandler, again, philanthropists, the very best people in the entire world. Influence Watch notes, it has given approximately a billion dollars in grants to support organizations like ProPublica and the think tank Center for American Progress. They also help fund the ACLU. They fund Israel Palestine initiatives. They put $200 million into social justice organizations during the Summer of Love in 2020. So these are the people who own the group that is studying social media influence in elections around the world. It's one giant system of control with its tentacles everywhere. The AP article concludes. Spain's contentious election comes amid a recent uptick in online hate speech directed at the country's immigrants and Muslim residents. Some election ads run by the far right Vox party strike a similarly anti-immigrant chord, highlighting a conspiracy theory known as the Great Replacement, which suggests that democratic leaders in nations, including Spain and the U.S., are trying to replace white residents with non-white immigrants. In 2070, there will be no Spanish families, claims one online ad from Vox. So apparently now the Spanish people are white and have the same racial problems that we have in the U.S. And the illegal immigration they have over there in order to change the politics and economy and society, the same as they're doing here, is absolutely not part of some sort of population replacement, even though they have told us specifically countless times that that's exactly what it is. And of course, that's what it is. This is slave labor to them, and they don't believe in borders. They want to move their slave labor to other places where they determine they need it. That's obviously what they're doing. And the fact that they are pushing for these people to be able to vote in the elections of their destination countries makes it pretty clear that they're looking to exploit their political power, not just their labor. So how about that? The same election narrative playing out in another foreign nation again. Always the same playbook everywhere. The same reporting the same sides of the story, all of it, always the same, slight variations in different countries and obviously happening at different times. But the playbook is the same over and over and over again. The same people in charge of the election apparatus, the same forms of fraud, fraud accomplished by mail-in balloting, massive spikes in requests for mail-in ballots for the first time ever. And somehow the parties of the regime outperform expectations again, allowing them the possibility to hold on to power, or at least they're just going to hold on to power while they wait, you know, whatever the king might allow. And so we see these things happening around the world again and again and again. We know that the system is designed to ensure the outcomes the regime desires And despite this, we imagine to ourselves that if we just work harder, we vote harder, we ballot harvest harder. If we do all of these things, none of which have to do with convincing people that we have the right ideas and building actual legitimate majorities like we already have done. We have no choice but to play within the system because that's the system. That's where all the power is. We have no say. This woman arguing with me yesterday was like, what's your plan? What's your plan? And that is a tactic in an argument. She wants me to assert a new subject, a new line of discussion because her line of discussion has failed. She can't answer my questions or any of the critiques of this ballot harvesting scheme that has no chance of working and is in principle antithetical to free and fair elections. It is the opposite of election security. It is the acceptance of a rigged system. She can't answer for that. She can't support it. She can't defend it. So she wants to change subjects. What is your plan? And I said, my plan is to make sure everybody knows that this election system cannot be trusted and there's nothing we can do about the elements of this system to make it free and fair. The system as a whole must be taken away and torn down. There is no way to do that within the system. That cannot be accomplished by quote unquote winning rigged elections because the people they allow to win will not fix the problems. That's why they're being allowed to win. But these people can't admit that because then they admit that for the last three years they have ignored this problem while their country has been usurped. They would have to support Trump. They would have to admit that the no, no people were right and they can never, ever, ever do that. So they tell us that we must play within the system because they're too scared to move outside the system. They think that's too dangerous. They don't even see it as a possibility. That is how domesticated they are. That is how reliant on the system they are. When we get 70, 80, 90% of this nation to publicly understand and be willing to say that our elections are stolen and we are on that path, by the way, that last 10 or 20 or 30% of the country we need to get to that point who may not be there yet, they're going to shift as soon as public sentiment shifts and their incentive structure shifts. They don't need to be convinced. They're not going to decide something. They're not even thinking independently. They will understand that once, quote unquote, everybody knows our elections are stolen. They will, of course, know it, too, and pretend they knew the whole time. They will say, oh, yeah, you know, I kind of had doubts about that in 2020, but I just I saw these debunkings and no one had the evidence. No one ever showed me the evidence, man. How could I go on and believe something so crazy without everybody showing me the evidence all the time? Those people will eventually just change their minds. They will declare a different belief because they don't care about their beliefs. They don't have a belief now. They just know that the right thing to say is that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, blah, blah, blah. What we need is for people to be able to defy the domestication and override the fear that has been planted inside us and enforced upon us by this regime. The same people always doing all of it. The same people who steal our elections are the same people supporting Nazi armies in Ukraine. They're the same people who told us about the pandemic and told us to lock down and mask up They're the same people who implemented the mail-in ballots and told us that the elections are free and fair, safe and secure. They're the same people who said that we were telling the big lie and staged a violent insurrection to take over the country, all because we could see that our elections were stolen after they were stolen in broad daylight. These people lie about absolutely everything, and we think they won't lie about this. They won't lie about this. They would never lie about a stolen election. They would never lie about World War II. They would never lie about nukes or AI. But it's not true. They lie about absolutely everything because we keep on believing it. And that fear puts us in a state to obey whatever commands they're given. So, of course, Oppenheimer is a massive propaganda effort. It keeps us, once again, right where they want us, fully domesticated. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com. And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. Out on the range.